Hello, this Planet Philadelphia interview you're about to hear is with Colette Pichon-Battle. She's a lawyer and a native of Louisiana, and she's the founder of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, promoting equity in Gulf Coast communities of color most affected by climate change. When I spoke with her, she was the executive director of the U.S. Human Rights Network. This interview was originally aired on gtownradio.com. She was in Philadelphia to speak at the Climate Justice and Jobs Building the Beloved Community Symposium Organized by Power, which is people organized to witness, empower, and rebuild. I have to apologize. We were outside. There was a bit of breeze and other sound from the surrounding area. However, I think you'll really be interested in hearing what Ms. Pichon Battle has to say. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah, of course. First of all, I love Philadelphia. This has been a great trip. Uh, It's my first trip. And I got started after Katrina, actually, in this work. Um, where I went home just to help with rebuilding. And I saw just a lot of the, um, not just devastation, but also the inequalities that go along with disaster recovery. So I moved home and I I said, you know, I'll be home for about five years and just kind of help out. And I was mid-career-ish, able to move around, no kids, things like that. And then about five years into recovery, we got hit with the BP oil drilling disaster. And that was just a huge wake-up call understanding that the Gulf was really ground zero for both extractive disasters but also climate disasters and those things were connected. It was really at that point that I started to understand the climate crisis um, and what it meant for our region and then from there really just looked at what the climate crisis looked like globally. I just began to look at what other global communities were dealing with and it was the same issues, right? Migration, sort of the the extractive industries, the way they can keep going, the way they can keep maintaining their level of culpability for the issues, but um, no accountability to really help prepare the communities that are being impacted. So it's hard to believe, but it's been 12 years since Katrina. And in that time, on top of the legal background that I had, really taught myself about community organizing, taught myself about grassroots organizing and starting from the ground up, um, and then have really rooted myself in the climate movement. Um, Not necessarily from the science starting point, but more from where the communities are um, and really thinking about how to build community power around this climate issue. I've read a little bit about what you've done, and you seem to be very interested in justice. (laughs) And climate change is a moral issue. Do I have that right? You do. You do. I mean, it's... um The way we talk about climate change often is this sort of like um, scientific, cold, uh, futuristic fact. But really what we're dealing with, at least from my experience in in recovery of climate-based disasters, is that we're dealing with a dynamic, intricate, difficult issue of our own moral choices how we choose to act and how we how we choose to be as humans on this earth. What happens to people in disaster? This becomes a moral question, right? After Katrina, what we saw were 
decisions about particular groups of people, you know, who gets to be saved, who gets to recover, and why. And when you see these things rooted in race and class, you understand that we're dealing with the same moral question we've been dealing with for a long time around equity and justice. But I would also say that we Americans, not just our fossil fuel industries, not just our big companies, but Americans are responsible for so much energy usage, for so much consumption, that just the average American consumes like what seven people around the globe consume. So we have actually a moral obligation because it was us and our way of life that has actually really contributed to where the planet is now. So we not only have a moral obligation to respond in climate disaster in a way that preserves human dignity, but we have a moral obligation as culprits to really respond to the globe and what the globe needs. This is, of course, really sad considering our president pulling us out of the Paris Agreement or making that declaration to do so because it, what it does is it takes out the U.S.'s obligation to the globe and a moral obligation when we were, in fact, some of the main violators of this balance of our earth and our water and our land. The president did pull us out of the Paris Agreement and now recently the Clean Power Plan. And... I'm not sure that actually absolves us of the responsibility, though. I think that's right. We're seeing governors and mayors declare that even despite the president's, uh, at least his verbal stance on the Paris Agreement, he, we, we're, we're still in there. There's still some vacillating going on between uh, the Trump administration and, and what we're actually going to do. But there are leaders standing up saying we're going to still reduce our CO2 emissions, our greenhouse gas emissions from our state level, from our local level. And I think a lot of folks have figured out that if we can't depend on our federal government to meet those moral obligations to the globe, to the planet, it's going to take courageous leadership from localized areas like our municipalities and our states and even some of our congressional representation to stand up and say uh, we see our role in as citizens of this earth and we um, accept our responsibility and our accountability and we will move forward with or without the president. It's an interesting argument because the same states' rights argument that we hear from the Republican and conservative side is the basis for that kind of action to have the leadership have the right to move as their own states, which I think is a, a tribute to our, our nation, our republic. That is interesting. I've heard some senators say that, for instance, California shouldn't be able to have its own rules, but it sounds like that's the opposite of what they want to do in their own states. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're in upside-down political times for sure. You hear progressive folks making conservative arguments. You hear conservative folks making progressive arguments. The state's right argument is a basic shift in this space. And I find it really interesting because I, I think it's an indication that we just don't know where we're going to land after this presidency. We don't know how much he's going to upset versus how much he just causes chaos to make you think there was some shift. There are a lot of people who believe the tweets that the president has out there equals law or e equals fact. And I think that the inability to see truth from fiction or to tell the truth from what is being put into the chaos is only going to complicate our political future. How we see ourselves. Am I a conservative? Am I a liberal? Am I a progressive? I think it's going to be interesting to hear what kind of arguments come out of all of our mouths, no matter where you are on that spectrum because I think many of us will be making the kinds of arguments that we never thought we would make, just flipping, really.
I guess it's a strategy. I think it's a strategy of chaos. I think we are a nation of people who believe in our own individual selves. And I think that that is going to hurt us. We've lost our ability to see ourselves as part of a collective. And the a main tool when folks are really bought into that individualism is chaos, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can't see me and I can't see you, and we've, we've not really figured out a way to move collectively, even without seeing each other, then you disappear and I disappear. I think it's a brilliant tactic for all the wrong reasons. Um, and I think we're going to see the, the worst parts of it. Hmm. We owe something to future generations, but look how we're treating the generations now. Yeah. There's two ways to see that, that comment. I think you're right. I think we owe something to future generations. I think for many Americans thinking about their own legacy and what your grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to have to go through is a, is a driver for many folks. And I think that's right. But I also think that comment is rooted in privilege because there are only a few segments of this society that get to think about their future like that, right? For most of us, um, I'm African-American, raised in rural Louisiana, financially on the lower end of, of the financial spectrum. I don't come from necessarily folks who can see two and three generations down the road. They're, they have to struggle every day. And I think this has been the, the, a little bit of the disconnect with the climate movement, right? Mm. So when our communications and our messaging is rooted in privilege, you miss the folks who don't have that privilege and for whom that communications or messaging piece won't work. We do owe something to our next generations. We absolutely do. And if you can't see that, then we at least owe it to ourselves today, our communities today, to do better. Um, I think both both work, right? The future and the now. We've really got to be able to connect people to, to that reality. The moral argument is about the future and what we're going to leave, but it's also about our daily actions and what we are going to wake up and decide to do every day. Mm-hmm. I understand what you're saying about people not mm-hmm. having the luxury right. to look generations ahead right. and say, oh, these effects are going to be so horrible for right. my grandchildren. They're trying to survive today, right. dealing with really urgent issues. Absolutely. However, it seems like the industry that's bringing climate change is also affecting our lives now. Philadelphia has, I believe, twice the number of children with asthma, mm. and it's largely due to fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, Philadelphia also has a higher incident of lung cancer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, COPD right. because of the air quality. Right. This is an urgent issue when their child can't go to school because right. he can't breathe. Right. And when the child can't go to school, there's either, you know, extra money that has to be found for child care and or you lose a day's pay at work. I mean, there's a real financial ripple effect for sure. I think about this all the time. I, I suffer with asthma, and I was in San Francisco's when the fires started. Oh my. And I have been um, having to use my inhaler for the first time in 20 years since that. And I, I was thinking about all of the children in that smoke zone. I was an hour away from the fires, and the air quality was so bad that I had to use my own medication that I hadn't had to use in a long time. And I, I really thought about all of those children in Richmond, California, where we hear about the refinery fights, and in Oakland, where we heard about the port fights. I mean, what were those children, um, how were they doing? 
I think the impacts are absolutely immediate. They're happening right now. And I think one thing that the climate movement could do a better job of is really meeting people where they are. So parents who have to deal with sick children don't necessarily want to hear about CO2 emissions right away. Instead, it is an opportunity to connect the reality of what their child is going through, and no parent wants to see their child suffer, but to really connect that reality to the climate movement, to the broader movement for justice, to access to health care or reduced triggers as part of this climate movement. This is when things get complicated, right? Because some folks just want to focus on polar bears or science or numbers. But I think a human rights framework can help us to focus back on people. And if we can focus on people's everyday lives and everyday struggles, we'll see that the climate crisis permeates everything. We start where people start from, and then we can all meet in the middle. It's just a nice day. It's just a nice day. <laughs> you can tell listeners that we're in a fairly populated area. We are in a populated area on a beautiful day. Thank you, my darling. <laughs> Uh, we are in a, a populated area on a beautiful day, and this is what beautiful days should look like. This is, this is what we're fighting for, right? More beautiful days, more people riding around with, with, uh, with their music playing. We just need uh, low-emission vehicles and uh, solar panels to make sure that we're... <laughs> there's some shifts that need to happen on this beautiful day, but we want more beautiful days. Hey, do you want to tell me about what you're doing now, the sorts of uh, efforts that you're working on? I'd love to. So one of the things I want to mention is that my work now is leading the nation's largest grassroots network working for human rights in the U.S. I've just taken this position in January, and my job is really to connect the climate movement and the human rights movement together. And I think the human rights framework is the framework that can help bring a lot more folks into this climate movement, right? If we really focus on the humanity and the human dignity of one another, I think we can get there. I'm really excited to have set that new direction for the organization. And out of that are coming some really great programs and projects. We've launched a Center for Climate Law and Policy where we're going to be training solo practitioner lawyers in climate disaster, offering free clinics in the middle of climate disaster for communities, and really using community data to help inform new policy shifts and changes in laws and regulations rooted in the experiences of the community. So I'm really excited about that. In December, we'll be launching the Sustainable Economy and Energy Democracy Coalition, SEED. This will be a national coalition really pushing alternative financing and alternative financial resourcing at the ground level for sustainable communities, as well as really getting folks to understand that owning your own energy Having access to your own energy resources is really where we need to be moving to. We don't all need to be relying on really dirty coal plants and nuclear plants to bring electricity to our homes. Instead, we need to be thinking of new and innovative ways to have um, our homes ready and independently ready to get electricity back, say, after a storm or, or, or other disaster. Those are some great programs coming our way, and I, I'm so excited to share that with you and your listeners. Great. Is there anything else you want to say? 
that I've been inspired by only 12 hours uh, on the ground watching folks come together of all races and all generations come together around this issue of climate um, and to really put justice and jobs and things that are important to the most marginalized communities at the front. This feels like Philadelphia is a real leader and I'm really excited to be here. Oh, great. Well, thank you. It's really been lovely speaking with you. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. Thank you for listening.